This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. Hello, I'm Amelia Searson. While oil and gas continues to power most of our everyday lives, the industry's environmental impacts are causing more and more countries to consider transitioning from oil and gas to renewables. But is this switch really feasible? With me to discuss this topic are two experts from Curtin University's Oil and Gas Innovation Centre, the centre's director, Professor Klaus Otto, and senior research fellow, Dr. Roberto Aguilera. Thank you both for coming in today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So just to get started, I understand that uh, there have been several countries, including China, South Korea, Japan, who have announced their commitment to drastically cut carbon emissions and you know, move to a more renewable energy sources. Uh, yet Australia has revealed that it's going to boost its oil and gas production. Can you explain to me what's going on with this? Okay, um, let's, let me kick it off first. So it's um, not only these Asian countries um, who are doing this or announcing it, it's also the EU and even the America, the United States, um, they're sort of pledged that they want to reduce their emissions by, by the mid-century to net zero. How are they going to accomplish that? That's still the question out there. So um, it is nice to say we will do this, but it's a different thing of show us. Um, so I think that's a challenge. But um, Roberto has a bit more insight to what's going on in Australia. Yeah, well, I'd say that post-pandemic, this has become a, a, a very topical issue and it has accelerated the, the push for an energy transition. And that's why we're hearing all of this narrative around uh, the end of oil and gas and uh, a move to renewables. Sorry, you, who's, who's talking about that? Everyone around the world. As Klaus said, there are many countries that are making these pledges around mid-century. And the reason is that there's immense pressure right now on governments and on oil and gas companies in particular to accelerate this kind of transition. And this pressure comes from the public, from their own shareholders, from policymakers. And the companies are realizing that, you know, in a sense, their survival depends on navigating uh, these issues. And to do that, you know, they're, they are trying to do things like reduce emissions and act more responsibly in general to meet principles related to environment, social and governance. You may have heard about ESG goals, very popular uh, today. And these companies are trying to reach those objectives in order to have that license to operate and to be able to uh, raise money from financial institutions and get uh, favorable treatment from governments. Mm. It's interesting. I feel like um, Australia follows in America's footsteps in a lot of ways, but from what just from what I've read and heard, Australia hasn't made such a drastic commitment to move to renewables or to reduce the oil and gas uh, industry, I suppose. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I didn't really touch on that. Klaus had mentioned uh, Australia, I forgot to mention. But yeah, I mean, this is a, we're a very important natural gas and LNG producer and exporter, especially here in WA. It's an important part of the economy. 
And currently the government, uh, you may be aware, has not made a particular goal for achieving this net zero. Though they have said they have a, that it would be desirable and they're aiming, like everybody else, middle of the century. But they're also being realistic. Uh, well, as Klaus mentioned, it's one thing to make the announcement, but it's a real concrete action that will uh, determine outcomes. And here, this government in Australia sees the existing strength in natural gas as part of the solution so that it can not only help us recover after the pandemic economically, but also lead to decarbonization of the uh, energy sector here and, and in Asia. Yeah, so the, the LNG and gas is considered sort of a transition fuel, um, although there's a debate around that now as well. But we shouldn't forget there are lots of uh, jobs attached to that industry. So it's not something you can turn off because um, where are these people going to work? The same issue with the coal industry, by the way. So you need to transition slowly into something else and create uh, jobs. Um, it's very important for the government. And of course, the, the revenue, the royalties they get. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the energy security element. <clears throat> you wouldn't want to walk away from uh, all of these resources and then have to depend on other countries to provide them for you. So obviously oil and gas are scarce resources, you know, they're, they're natural, so they will eventually run out. At this stage, have we used most of the planet's oil and gas reserves? Um, and, you know, when are we looking at them running out? No, I, I think the consensus is at the moment there's enough oil and gas in reserves, um, it, but it's proven to be difficult to um, find the last drops or, or gas bubbles. Reservoirs are deeper, it's, it's harder to get to, the drilling is more challenging, it's very expensive. So uh, we have at the moment, or the companies and have on the books, lots of reserves, so which they need to uh, produce or monetize eventually, as long as the uh, demand is there. So there's enough gas or oil around, but it's a matter of do we actually need it uh, for the decades to come. Um, and so that's why you also see that companies are not investing in exploration for new oil and gas, at least not the riskier ones, like in deep water and so on. Um, so that's what, what we're seeing at the moment. Uh, and the oil price is very low at the moment. So there's no incentive actually to look for more oil and gas. Yet over the past hundred years or so, there really have been concerns about shortages of natural resources, whether that's agricultural land or uh, crude oil. And just over a decade ago, I mean, uh, you might not remember uh, Amelia, but uh, I do and Klaus probably does. I'm old enough. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a serious peak oil supply debate and there was concern that there were insufficient resources underground uh, to help uh, fuel the, the global economy and it would have devastating consequences for uh, humanity. Mostly, though, those fears have subsided because, as you mentioned, over the past decade, there has been uh, surging oil production, new reserves, uh, lower prices, and therefore, uh, you know, the, the, the fears appear to be uh, overstated. And my, my own research on this subject shows that in the past, uh, depletion of oil and gas hasn't really been a threat, neither in the physical nor in the economic sense and that it's unlikely to become a threat in the foreseeable future. And 
do you think that it's possible to simultaneously increase oil and gas production and decrease the environmental footprint? Do you think there's a way to sort of achieve both, I suppose? Yeah, so I mean, the companies are have also announced, by the way, that they want to reduce their carbon footprint. The Woodsides, the Shells, the BPs, um, BHP, um, the mining companies. So they all announced that um, to the public and their shareholders. Um, so they want to continue producing, but they also want to address their CO2 emissions. And you can do that with um, technology like uh, carbon capture and storage is one of them. You can offset your carbon with planting trees, for example, or uh, different farming practices. Uh, savanna burning, which is an aboriginal uh, process, by the way, is also a means of a carbon offset technology. So that's what companies will look into more and more. But um, at the end of the day, it's about costs. Mm. And do you think that's happening at, I guess, a quick enough rate to be able to decrease the environmental impacts? So in, in my view, um, companies are waking up at the moment because I made these pledges. They said, OK, how are we going to do this? It's not that easy that you can simply say, we're going to inject all the CO2 in the underground. That's too ex expensive. So they're looking at innovative technologies. Curtin is working on this um, to offset that carbon footprint. You may also buy carbon uh, credits in, on, the, on the market. So that's another technology companies are looking into. But they, I think they're realizing now, uh, this is coming. We need to do something because we promised. And I would say that natural gas in particular, uh, and, and in line with Australia's plans, can also be compatible with a low carbon future. Uh, I, I want to give one example about in, or rather in North America, in the US. That country had a unconventional shale gas revolution. Production went up, prices came down, and that led to a decommissioning of coal-fired power facilities and their replacement by plants run on gas. And that's reduced CO2 emissions in that country to levels not seen since the 1990s. So I think a similar uh, reduction in emissions can happen in this part of the world, Australia, Asia, to the extent that natural gas replaces dirtier coal in electricity generation. Mm. And Roberto, can you explain how new technologies are improving oil and gas production? Yeah, well, the unconventional shale oil and gas revolution that I just mentioned was the result of uh, sort of an unprecedented technological and productivity improvement. Most of that had to do with advances in horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, for example, very long uh, horizontal wells that can extend for many kilometers in length. And simultaneously, they, they perfected this, they brought costs down, and it led to that surge in oil and gas production and increased recovery of the reservoirs uh, underground. Previously, it had been uneconomic to produce this resource. Uh, it was locked in in very tight rock formations and it couldn't flow, but all of that changed. Uh, closer to home on the natural gas side, in LNG, over the past decade here in WA, we had a whole bunch of LNG projects come on stream. They had been planned while prices were very high during the commodity boom that we all remember. Then they all came online at the wrong time when the market had crashed 
So they were in a low price environment and it became necessary to reduce costs to improve productivity and, and they've learned lessons. So they've uh, done things like collaborate between the companies, standardize equipment, uh, have better early stage planning and, and introduced smaller, more flexible technologies like floating LNG, which is much less costly than the massive projects of the past. Also for consuming countries, uh, this floating import infrastructure is being considered for LNG. It enables poorer countries who don't have that financial scale to construct massive onshore import facilities, the opportunity to increase their gas usage as well. I think it's exciting uh, technology, which Curtin is working on and renowned for is uh, on digital data, data analytics. So that includes uh, machine learning, uh, these, these things, and that improves productivity, makes it safer as well. Uh, robotics, automation is another one. So that's what um, industry um, is implementing and Curtin Research is actually quite essential in providing these um, opportunities or these new technologies. So um, that's sort of imp imp optimizing production basically. Um, and there, there are lots of um, improvements still to be gained, but um, they're sort of deciding how much is that going to cost us and is it actually yeah, better, a benefit to, to the oil price or our yeah. products. And before I ask a question about what Curtin is, is doing in terms of all of this, Klaus, would you mind explaining briefly what uh, decommissioning oil is? Yeah, so decommissioning is, is a hot topic for Australia now. Um, it is about um, decommissioning um, existing facilities, offshore and onshore. So we're talking about platforms, pipelines, wells. Uh, in Australia, we have hundreds and hundreds of wells, uh, not only from the oil and gas industry, but the mining industry, uh, the water production, like water corporation and so on. Eventually, once you stop producing, the legislation says you will have to decommission and remove these facilities um, and that's not only the, the hardware, but also the waste, for example. Now, it's offshore, it's a challenge, and it's very expensive. But every operator has a liability on its books. You will have to decommission your infrastructure and your asset once you cease production. That's what the law says. And there are regulations around that. And you, Companies are now looking at options how to reduce that cost for decommissioning and Curtin is, is working on that. So, for example, what does it mean if you leave a pipeline or um, a platform um, on the seafloor? So, that means you don't have to bring it to onshore and then put it to, um, convert it into scrap for the, and sell this, the, the metal. So. There are issues around that in terms of uh, environmental impact. And the legislation is not ready yet to say, yes, you're allowed to do that. So at the moment, Curtin is working on that. What does it mean if you leave pipelines which have may have uh, polymer coatings? Does the polymer coating degrade and does it have an impact on the marine environment, for example? So we're working on that. Uh, for the companies, of course, it, is, it could be a cost-saving thing. You don't have to bring it to onshore. So Curtin is working on decommissioning. We're working with the business school on this as well and the school of law, because this is about um, legal issues, liabilities, but also the economics, of course. So it, it's cross-disciplinary because we work on this uh, across all the faculties. And the Commonwealth has announced that 
the liability of the infrastructures actually with the, the first owner of that asset. So there are examples out there already where the government is saying, if you want to leave that field or that asset, you have to clean it up. You can't sell it on to a third party. So that's new for Australia. The North Sea is doing it already in the UK. Australia is waking up. So this is an interesting space to work in. And what other research is Curtin currently doing address to address our future energy needs? Uh, there's lots going on. Um, so we have a very good scientists and professors working on hydrogen. So the storage of hydrogen, um, so we can use it for transport. Uh, we have an institute working on biomass, converting biomass into fields, which is a carbon, can be carbon neutral. We have a CRC for future batteries. And so that's all future energy. We, we work on um, smart cities, smart grids, um, renewables. There's lots going on. And for students studying oil and gas, how are they being prepared to address changes in the industry? Because obviously it's all very tumultuous, I suppose. Yes. The students are quite concerned, of course, about um, climate change, as are others, um, and vocal. On the other hand, industry is still looking for the engineers, uh, mechanical, chemical, petroleum engineers. Curtin will continue teaching um, these engineering degrees and business degrees. At the same time, students have options nowadays to enroll in units, which is a blend of both. So the more the traditional engineering, but also with an, an, an added units on data analytics, environmental assessments, and all these kinds of things. So it's pretty broad, and companies are looking for these graduates um, for their next yeah, hires. Yeah, I, I just add that, you know, as oil and gas is still quite an important part of the energy mix today, three quarters to 80%. Uh, also, you know, students are being taught that, you know, if they go into the industry, it will be very important for their organizations to engage in the dialogue with their communities, with policymakers and so on, so that they'll be able to act uh, sustainably, reduce their environmental uh, footprint. All of this will be very important so that these organizations can continue to thrive. Mm. Collaboration amongst all these different areas, you know, engineers, town planners, yeah, it's all very, very important. Um, so Roberto, even if we stopped using oil and gas for our everyday needs, fossil fuels are required for products ranging from jet fuel to asphalt. Do we have any viable alternatives for these applications, do you think? Sometimes. It depends on the sector. The most important end-use sector for crude oil is transportation, mostly road transportation, but also in the air and on the sea. And there isn't a large-scale substitute here, except for, say, electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, but they still represent a tiny portion of the market. They're on the rise, but it's going to take some time before they can really displace, say, the internal combustion engine. Another important sector for crude oil is the petrochemical industry, which is the, the sector that manufactures products we use in everyday life. All kinds of materials ranging from plastics to pharmaceuticals to cosmetics. And there too, it's sort of hard to replace crude oil. Natural gas is sometimes a, a substitute, but it's uh, difficult. And this is expected to be uh, an important source of growth for the oil industry longer term. Uh, there is some pushback against the, the use of plastic, so that could 
slow the demand growth somewhat, but really it will take time to develop these alternatives. And importantly, it has to be affordable to consumers. You know, if an electric vehicle, for example, costs much more than a, a normal car, a lot of people will be hesitant, especially those on modest incomes. And you have no recharging stations. Another good point, mm -hmm. the infrastructure, <laughs> you need that. And mm. we live in WA and, and in Perth, these are big places, long distances, and to have a decent quality of life, you generally need a car. Some people mm. take the train and ride a bike, but most of us not. Mm. Yes, we've definitely got that urban sprawl, don't we? Mm -hmm. So something that I think is very interesting is to use something like um, to get a wind farm. You know, you need, you need steel, you need, you need mining. So what place do you think that mining has in terms of, you know, transitioning with renewables? Um, mining, in my opinion, is essential. We need the, the critical metals like the batteries, wind power, <clears throat> lithium, all these. That's not going away. But also the mining industry is, is rethinking how they can uh, reduce their carbon footprint in terms of producing these metals out of their smelters and so on. So uh, that's coming. Um, and they're thinking about um, the hydrogen um, or uh, yeah, solar plants. So I think the, the mining industry um, is vital for all these new technologies, actually, because we need these metals mm. and these precious metals as well and, and these rare metals. It's, especially now with um, all this conflict in, in the world about who has these resources, it's important Australia has itself sufficient actually. And I'll, I'll pose that same question, but in terms of oil and gas, what, what place do you think they have in our future? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, and, and sort of continuing on from the last question uh, and, and back to natural gas, which is part of what Australia is pushing uh, for the future, it can also lead to widespread uh, renewable energy development right. in that uh, we know that the, the major limitation with renewables like solar and wind is that they are intermittent. You have to use the resource, the electricity generated when the sun and the wind is actually available. And when it's not, you need a backup for that intermittency. And this is where natural gas, the cleanest of the fossil fuels, can play an important role. Longer term, I'd say, you know, I, I concur with most forecasting organizations that see continued consumption growth of oil and gas for several decades. It's very difficult to transition quickly in the short term, especially in the developing world. These are countries that are in earlier stages of economic development and they depend on abundant and affordable resources uh, compared with us, you know, in the industrialized countries where we, of course, can afford more expensive alternatives. And we're in a more advanced stage of economic development where we depend on services for our economic growth. So we don't use these very energy intensive industries like to establish infrastructure and heavy industry in the same way that the developing world does. Yeah, we shouldn't forget that I mean, yes, you can't stop suddenly oil and gas production and you can't switch over overnight. I mean, it takes decades. But there are consequences in doing this. We need to think about that. And that's society, how society needs to adapt to that. It's not only society has to adapt to the climate changes, but it also has to adapt to different energy sources. And so oil and gas 
maybe there's only a renewable so not everyone can afford it or has access to it so it, it is a, a very important society issue as well the community needs to um, address and the politicians um, so the, the like uh, the Curtin Institute for Future Work um, has a very important role to play in that transition um, not only technology so that's why I think this future energy um, Curtin is working on at the moment is not just science and engineering it is also the business school but it's also humanities so it's it's a very important aspect we need to uh, understand um, they call it the just transition. Uh, it's actually about the jobs. It's reskilling, preparing the next graduates for the decades to come. Um, so that takes time too. And so you can't just switch off and on. Mm. Also, Klaus, the continuity of policy support over yeah. many decades uh, will be necessary. And that can be tricky sometimes for you know politicians to introduce these measures to reduce uh, emissions like taxes on carbon or enforced regulation or subsidies to alternatives that uh, emit less, but it also is a, a requirement for alternatives to gain a significant share in the long-term energy market. Yeah, that's true. Yes, it's a very interesting time that we're living through all of these evolving resources and it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the future. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you. Klaus and Roberto for joining me and sharing your expertise on this topic. Um, if people want to find out more about both of you and, and your research, uh, how can they reach you? So the, the Center for Oil and Gas Innovation, which is maybe not the most appropriate name anymore, but <laughs> um, does have a website. So um, our contacts are on there, our other podcasts are on there. Um, I have a LinkedIn account. Roberto, you have one too, I believe. Yeah, and that's it for social media. We're not up to date <laughs> with all the extras, uh, Twitter and uh, no, I don't do what, that. what have you. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you'd like to share your thoughts on today's episode or have a question, send us an email at thefutureof at curtin.edu.au. And if you liked this episode, don't forget to share it and subscribe to our podcast. Bye for now.